Well, as we just sang, our hearts are prone to wander. Where can they go when our hearts have wandered? Only one place, and that is into the presence, back to our Heavenly Father, our Lord and Savior. If you have your Bible, will you please turn with me to Hosea chapter 9. Hosea chapter 9. We're going to be looking at chapters 9 and 10 this morning, and we're going to see that theme of hearts wandering. And what solution is there for a wandering heart? What hope is there for a wandering heart? God has that message for his people through the prophet Hosea. We've been going through Hosea over and over again uh, for the past few weeks, and we've seen that you reap what you sow. When you plant corn, you can hopefully harvest corn later, but it is the same with faith. And we're going to see that principle played out again in Hosea 9 and 10. Hosea chapter 9, let me begin by just reading uh, verse 1. And before I read it, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh Lord, our hearts are prone to wander, but your heart is steadfast. You, Lord, have never once wandered. You've never broken a promise. You've never forgotten to be faithful. You've never been caught off guard. Nothing surprised you this morning when we woke up. You were steadfast in your love for us yesterday. You were steadfast for us this morning. You will be steadfast the rest of today. And then tomorrow we will find you again, the God of steadfast love. So now as we open your word and hear from you, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive your words with joy, hope, and gladness. Thank you for this time in your word. In Christ's name, amen. Hosea chapter 9. I'm going to start by just reading verse 1. Let's hear the glorious word of our steadfast God. Rejoice not, O Israel. Exult not like the peoples. For you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. As we turn the page to Hosea chapter 9, we're hit again with this language of marital infidelity on behalf of God's people. God has been faithful. He made a covenant with Israel and he kept the covenant, but his people did not keep the covenant. So in Hosea, God is using that language of marital infidelity and unfaithfulness. We've seen this language over and over and over again, but there are two new ideas that jump off the page in just this one verse. And the first is right at the start. It says, Rejoice not, O Israel. Uh, Hosea the prophet has been exposing the ongoing generational sins of his people. And uh, God is saying through Hosea, Don't 
rejoice. Now is not the time to celebrate. Don't celebrate your sins. We live in a world and we're surrounded by this word celebrate, celebrate, celebrate. We're supposed to celebrate everything and anything. But God says you can't celebrate sins. Don't celebrate sins. Now for Christians, it's, it's rare for us to walk into a church or a Bible study and say, hey, hey do you want to hear about my sins this week? But it can be tempting, can it, for us when we're sharing and someone shares, well, I used to struggle with this sin of lying and we're tempted to get some brownie points from our story. You lied like that. Watch what I did. Listen to this story of my great sins. Oh yeah, God saved me from them. All credit to God. But let me tell you a story of my great sins. Sometimes we're tempted to tell those stories and get into some celebration of our own sins. God says, in the midst of your sin, this is not the time to rejoice. Let's not celebrate our sins. Let's come into the presence of a holy God with no joy in our hearts that we have been sinners. So rejoice not, O Israel. The second thing Hosea says, you can see it there in verse 1, you have loved a prostitute's wages. What God is saying through Hosea the prophet to sinful hearts is this. You sinned and you liked it. Or you wouldn't have done it. You sinned and you loved it. Now, don't get Hosea wrong. He's not saying that we as God's people love being sinners. That's not what he's saying. Hopefully, if you're a Christian for any amount of time at all, you hate the fact that you're a sinner. And you hate your own sin. But in the moment of the sin, we sin because that was the more enjoyable choice of our options, if we're being honest. Let's be honest. We like our sins. We have sinned in lust because we wanted to. We liked it for a moment. We've sinned in envious gossip. Oh, those people, those people, those people, because it felt right in our hearts for the moment. We've sinned in anger because anger feels powerful. We liked that feeling of anger for the moment. Maybe we even loved it. We've sinned in laziness because that pillow felt so much more comfortable than our responsibilities. We don't love being sinners, but we've loved the individual sins. That's what God is saying to his people through Hosea the prophet. What is the word you have loved? A prostitute's wages. You've sinned and you loved it. If you want an incredible book about sin, I'd recommend uh, Augustine's Confessions. Augustine's Confessions. Not the whole thing. It gets a little bit of a slog uh, in the back half of it, but like the first maybe 30 pages of Augustine's Confessions. St. Augustine wrote 1,600 years ago about the nature of sin in the human heart, and that means this is nothing new. 1,600 years ago, he wrote his Confessions. He tells a story of himself and some friends who decided to steal some pears. Raise your hand if you've ever stolen pears. Okay, raise your hand if you've ever sinned. Okay, now all of our hands are up. Why did he and his friends steal the pears? Here's the thing. This is so deceptive about sin in the human heart, in the sinner's heart. He, he and his friends didn't steal the pears because they wanted the pears. Listen to how he says it. We carried off a huge load of pears, not to eat ourselves, but to dump out to the hogs after barely tasting some of them ourselves. 
doing this, listen, pleased us all the more because it was forbidden. Such was my heart, O God, such was my heart, which thou didst pity even in that bottomless pit. Behold, now let my heart confess to thee that what it was seeking there when I was being gratuitously wanton, having no inducement to evil but the evil itself. And then a little bit later in the paragraph, he concludes with this sentence. It was foul, and I loved it. It was foul, and I loved it. So human sin is not simply behaviors that are outside of God's boundaries. Here's God's boundaries, and we act in this way in behaviors and actions and activities and thoughts outside of God's boundaries. It's not just behavior outside of God's boundaries. Sin is love outside of God's boundaries. Loving, desiring things that are outside of God's boundaries— Loving theft, not for the thing stolen, but for the act of it. Loving envy, not just because that person has more than you have, but because you wanted the feeling of envy in your heart because it made you feel better about yourself. We love our sins in the moment. We hate being sinners, hopefully, but we love our sins when we commit them. And that's why, even though in Hosea 9 and 10, we're going to spend a lot of time in the mud and in the muck and mire of sin, this is why we needed a Savior to come one day who would offer us new hearts. Not just new behaviors. We needed new hearts. Because our hearts wanted the things outside of God's beautiful design for them. Sinners don't need new behaviors. We need new hearts. So Hosea says, you have loved a prostitute's wages. You sinned and you liked it. So the first thing was don't celebrate sin. The second thing is admit that your heart has loved sins. That's just verse 1, but there's so much more in Hosea chapter 9. Look at verses 2 and 3 now. Hosea 9 verses 2 and 3. Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. So the crops that they bring in from their own harvest, that's not going to take care of them anymore. Verse 3, they shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. Ephraim shall return to Egypt. What does that sound like? You may remember in the book of Exodus, they were slaves in Egypt and they were rescued by God in the book of Exodus. And now because they have chosen the path of sin and they're rejoicing in it, they're celebrating their sin, they're liking their sin. God says now the fruit of that sinfulness is you're going back to slavery. You're going back to slavery. When we are engaging in regular ongoing sins, that is is slavery. Even if it feels good in the moment, it's slavery. And you know this, if you've ever been addicted to anything, if you've ever been addicted to alcohol, you know the slavery of, I could stop there and get one. Oh, I could open the fridge. I could have another one. If you've ever been addicted to pornography, you know that feeling of slavery. Uh, Again, tonight, I'm going to look. Where's my phone? Where's my computer? How am I going to hide it? You know the slavery of those thoughts. If you've ever been addicted to video games, you know you're at school. And all you can think about in math class is video games. And all you can think about in English class is video games. And all you can think about is recess. Well, recess is fun. And all you can think about in spelling is video games, right? 
It's a slavery. It's a controlling of your mind, and it's slavery. If you've been addicted to social media, you're on your phone all the time. I don't know what happened in the world in the last hour. I need to know. I need to know. I need to know. If you've been addicted to envious thoughts, constantly comparing yourselves to others, the frequent urge to look or yell or drink or compare, that's slavery. It's slavery. So our sins bring us back into slavery. Israel was going to have to literally go back to Egypt. Some of them would be exiled to Egypt. And they were going to eat the dirty food of Assyria because their sins brought them into slavery. So here's the problem. The human hearts rejoice in sin. We like our sins, but sins enslave us. What's the solution? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. What is the solution to that sin problem in our hearts? Here's the thing. It's not what we normally think. Our sins bring us into slavery. And so what we do as Americans is we think, well, then my actions are going to have to bring myself out of slavery. Religion, spirituality, doing spiritual things. That got me into trouble. Well, maybe it will get me out. And our sins lead us into slavery, but our deeds do not get us out of the problem. Israel tried it. Israel tried it. We cannot save ourselves. Empty spirituality is not going to save you. We see that in verses 4 through 6. This empty spirituality is all over Israel in the 8th century BC when Hosea was exposing their problem. Verse 4. They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please him. It shall be like mourner's bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled. For their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they are going away from destruction. But Egypt shall gather them. Memphis shall bury them. Nettles or thorns shall possess their precious things of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. That's the language of the religious activities of the Jewish people in the days of Hosea. And they were trying to get back to God through the things instead of going to God himself. In verse 4, drink offerings, sacrifices. In verse 5, the festivals, the days of the feasts. In verse 6, at the end, the precious things of silver. They were hoping that their religious activities could change their hearts instead of going to the God who can change hearts. We do this, don't we? We do this, don't we? Uh, picture a student in high school or college, and they cheated on two tests, and they confessed their sin. Well, yeah, I cheated on a couple tests this week, but I'm going to go to church on Sunday, and that'll fix my cheating heart. Really? You think that's going to—you think checking something off of your list is going to change a heart that wants to cheat to get ahead? That is not— the solution. Israel tried it and it didn't work. And let's confess, let's admit, we do this too. We think that we have a deep-rooted heart problem with a sin we've been struggling with for three years and we think, oh, if I just pray one time, it'll go away. If I just do one religious deed, if I give to the poor, if I help the needy, if I do this one good thing, all that years and years of heart sin will go away. It doesn't work and it didn't work for Israel. So we see the principle that our sins bring us into slavery, but our good deeds don't bring us out of slavery. We need something greater than ourselves to save us from our sins. 
So because Israel was stuck in this cycle, punishment as promised from God was going to come to them. We see that played out in verses 7 through 9. 7 through 9. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God. Yet a fowler's snare is on all his ways and hatred in the house of his God. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. In verses 7 and 9, we see that same promise, the covenant-keeping God who said through Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Now Israel themselves has cursed themselves by their sinful disobedience. And so God is going to send them into exile, separation from God geographically as a correction, as a judgment on their sins. However, Over and over again in the prophets, mercy had been offered. Reconciliation had been offered through the prophets like Hosea. And we've seen that multiple times in Hosea. But how were the prophets treated? They had a hard job, didn't they? Try going into any public place today. Actually, don't. (laughs) But imagine going into a public place today and saying, Hey, everyone, you're a bunch of sinners and you need to repent and turn from your sins. You wouldn't get a lot of high fives. No one would want to take a selfie with you. Maybe somebody would. Like, look at this crazy person. I don't take a selfie with them. Guess what? Guess who I talked to at the grocery store or wherever it was? How were the prophets received? Oh, the same they would be received today. We don't like hearing the message that we're sinners. Look at the middle of verse 7. The prophet is a fool. The man of the Spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. God is saying that since they're iniquitous, since they've got hatred in their hearts, when a real prophet from God comes along, they call the prophet a fool. Who is this fool who thinks that our hearts are the real problem with our lives? So they're calling the prophet mad. And here's what we see. They considered The message that sinners need salvation, foolishness. Here's the problem with sin. This is what it does to a human heart. When we're steeped in sin, we're actually so sick that we don't even want a doctor. We're actually so angry. If you've been angry, you know this. You don't want a peacemaker. Hey, let's resolve this. Get away from me. You're so angry, you don't want a peacemaker. You're so dirty, you don't want a shower. You're so sinful, you don't want a savior. That's the depth of sin in our hearts. And if it wasn't for the cross, if it wasn't for the songs we were singing this morning, we would have no hope. But in Christ we have hope. But the greater our understanding of the depth of sin is, the bigger the cross will be in our hearts. So let's see. God's glory is going to depart from Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel. They're going to be sent into exile. And we see that in verses 10 through 17. Hosea 9, 10 through 17. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame. And became detestable like the thing they loved. Ephraim's glory shall 
fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow. But Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them because of the wickedness of their deeds. I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. This is the poetic description of what happens when we run away from God. Verse 16. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. This is describing exile. They were in the promised land. God brought them there. They were going to be fruitful. They were going to multiply. They were going to have prosperity in the land. They were going to have families and generations of faithfulness after one another. Uh, But their sins brought them back to exile. In verse 10, it looks like it starts out with this hope of fruitfulness. Be fruitful and multiply. But they decided to be fruitful and multiply in their worship of false gods. So they're bearing out the fruit of that in their land. Verse 12, I will depart from them because they had already departed from God. In verses 14 to 16, that's that language poetically of fruitlessness. And then in verse 17, they shall be wanderers among the nations. Like our hearts are prone to wander, Israel had to literally be wanderers outside of the promised land. Where would they find any hope? Their sins brought them back into exile. They shall be wanderers. And here's the principle we see. The reason this happened, the reason their hearts went astray, the reason they started to like sins again, is because they forgot who saved them. We get into trouble and sin when we forget who our Savior is. God delivered us from evil, but we go back to it. God delivered us from lying, but we go back to it. God delivered us from lust, but we go back to it. We forget who brought us out of slavery into the promised land. They did. And so God sends them to exile. 722 B.C. is when it happened for Israel. How about your heart this morning? Have you forgotten the God who saved you? Have you forgotten the depth of forgiveness your Savior has offered you? Have you forgotten the cost Jesus paid to pay for those sins you committed this past week and the one you're thinking about tonight or tomorrow or Wednesday? Have you forgotten? Are you taking God's grace and mercy for granted? Are you showing God's grace to others. There's a good litmus test. If not, maybe you've forgotten. Are you showing God's forgiveness to others? Have you said this week, I'm not going to forgive that? No way. Have you forgotten that you've been forgiven of rebelling against the creator of the universe? Were you the prodigal child 
who once ran away and then in your filth realized, I'm going to run back to God. And you ran back to God and you found an open door and you found a warm meal and you found forgiveness. But now you in your life have closed the door on someone else. You've turned off the stove and you've promised, no way will I show you the grace I've been shown. That means our hearts have forgotten what has been done for us through Christ. Israel forgot, and so they were sent away into exile. Verse 17 again. They shall be wanderers among the nations. Well, it's a pretty dark chapter 9, isn't it? It's not a lot of fun. I didn't have a lot of fun preparing this sermon this week. I wasn't laughing at my desk. No one was asking, why are you having so much fun? This is not a fun passage. We're exploring the depth of human sinfulness so that in our hearts, Jesus and what he did on the cross will be that much greater. To wrap up Hosea 9, first, don't celebrate your sins. Don't celebrate them. Second, admit that you've loved to sin, that your heart actually liked to sin. Third, our sins bring us into slavery. Fourth, our deeds don't save us from slavery. And fifth, don't take God for granted. Israel had forgotten who got them to the promised land. And to wrap the whole chapter up, they were sinners who needed a Savior, but they didn't want one on God's terms. They wanted to be their own Savior. Which brings us to chapter 10. Next week, if you're interested, next week is much brighter. (laughs) Chapter 11. Chapter 10, we'll see more of the same theme, so we're going to go really quickly through most of chapter 10, until we get to verse 11, we're just going to see bits and pieces of themes that we've seen so far. Hosea 10, look at verse 1. Verse 1. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. So God gave them wealth and prosperity and crops and families and neighbors and peace. And they took it all for granted and they used it for their own kingdom instead of for God's glory. That's verse 1. Verse 2. Their heart, remember the heart's the problem. The heart is always the problem. The heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. So they took their wealth. They took their prosperity. They took their blessing. They used it for their own kingdom instead of for God. And what God says is, because that prosperity is now getting in your way of worshiping God, God says, out of love for you, I'm going to break those things down. I'm going to destroy those false idols you've built. Bring them to God for destruction before he has to come do it against your will. Verse 3. For now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? It's possible that this is poetically saying they've given up. They've just thrown their hands in the air. Or maybe it's arrogance. Well, we don't even need a king and we don't need to fear the Lord. Arrogance or futility. Verse 4, they utter mere words with empty oaths. They make covenants. There's that empty religion again. So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. Verse 5, the inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of Beth-Avon. That's that false god they built, the golden calf, right? Its people mourn for it. They're crying over a false god. And so do its idolatrous priests. Those who rejoiced over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. 
The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. Stop there for a second. All sins bring shame. We were created in the image of God to be like him, to be in relationship with him. And when we sin, it leads to shame. Sins lead to shame for Israel and for our hearts as well. Verse 7, I said we're going quickly. Put your seatbelt on. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. In other words, only God can save. No human king, no sinful human king can save. Verse 8, the high places of Aven, the sin of Israel shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars. And they shall say to the mountains, cover us. And to the hills, fall on us. That's the people of Israel getting to the point where they realize all their false gods cannot save them. They've gone and they've tried to be rescued in every way but the one true God. And they have come to the point at their lowest where they've said, I have nothing left. Now the heart in that situation is supposed to turn back to the Lord. Did they? Would they? Have you? Will you? This is the language of admitting that your false gods have failed you. Verse 9 now. From the days of Gibeah you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah? When I please, I will discipline them. And nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. Okay, let's pause here before we get to 11 through 15, the the main chunk at the end of chapter 10. What have we seen so far in this chapter? God is keeping his promises, right? He's keeping his promises. He provided for them over and over and over, but they took him for granted. God promised to destroy false gods, and he's going to do it. God was slow to anger. They were arrogant in his face. God offered forgiveness and repentance and reconciliation, but they chose sin and shame. And all human kings, where we look to, like the, who's going to save me? Who's going to save me? All human kings are like, look at verse 7, like a twig on the face of the waters. They were supposed to get to the point in their lives where they had nothing left but to cry out to God to save them, but they didn't and they wouldn't. God brings us to that place where we have nothing left and we know it and we cry out to him. They were supposed to conclude only God can save. Are you struggling? Go to God in prayer and ask him to help you in your struggle. Are you lacking Intimacy. Go to God in prayer and ask Him to surround you with His fellowship. Are you needy? Go to God in prayer first and regularly. Are you selfish in your heart and you know the sin has been exposed? Take that to God first. He is the only one who can give you the heart you need so that you will stop liking sin. Only God can deliver you, and he does, and he does. I have the privilege of uh, serving here. Uh, This month is basically 
my 14th anniversary being here. I started as an intern in March of 2008. I'm going to say something pretty bold. So I've been in these walls for 14 years. I haven't gone a week without hearing a testimony from someone here that God showed up exactly when you needed him to. I haven't gone a week in 14 years. God shows up when we are at the place when we have nowhere else to go and we cry out to him. As Pastor Dick used to say, God always shows up. He's rarely early, but he's never late. To quote my friend Dick. So that's what they were supposed to conclude. Oh, this is how ugly our sins are. This is how desperate our situation is. I guess I'm going to cry out to God. This brings us to the conclusion of our passage. Verses 11 through 15. It's also written on the back of your bulletin. Type there if you need it. It's the only part we could fit. We had a lot to cover. Listen to these words. 11 through 15. Ephraim, that's another name for Israel, remember, the northern kingdom. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck. But I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow. Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and reign righteousness upon you. Verse 13, you have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Therefore, the tumult of war shall arise among your people and all your fortresses shall be destroyed. As Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle, mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. They're not going to make it. They're not going to thrive. They're stuck in their sin, looking to their own self-righteousness and to their armies. Oh, these are my resources. They'll save me. This is my own will. I'm going to pull myself up by my spiritual bootstraps and I'm going to get myself out of this sin condition. That is who they were trusting in. The end of verse 13, because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. We see this principle over and over in Hosea. You reap what you sow. And remember, that's a, that's a benefit. That's a feature, not a bug. Because look at verse 11. In the beginning of their relationship, when they got to the promised land, how was it going? Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh. In proper relationship with God, God puts us in a place where we can joyfully serve him. And it's not a heavy burden because Jesus has taken our greater burden. They had it good. They loved their job and God spared their neck. Threshing didn't require a heavy yoke on their shoulders. You just threshed and stomped on the grain or whatever it was that you were threshing. They were sowing righteousness. They were seeking God. They were being faithful in their relationship to God, and they were reaping what they were sowing. When they had a season of regular worship, faithful worship to God in the old covenant sacrificial system, they were close to God. 
And they received his peace and his steadfast love. And that happens to us as well. When we're not faking it, when we're earnestly, desperately seeking the Lord regularly, daily, in his word, going to him in prayer first thing in the morning and throughout the day, he gives us his peace and the fruit of his spirit. He does. That's that faith that walks with God. And we reap what we sow. Faith is reaping and sowing faithfulness. That is how God has designed it. And that is what Jesus has earned for us in his death, burial, and resurrection. We receive as a gift from God hearts of faithfulness. And we walk in that faithfulness and we reap what we sow. We reap what we sow. So in proper relationship to God, Ephraim loved their job. God spared their neck. Their burden was light, but their sins took them into slavery. Verse 13 again. You've plowed iniquity, so you've reaped injustice. So the judgment comes in the middle of verse 13. Now they're going to go into exile, and the burden is going to get a lot harder. I will put Ephraim to the yoke. They're going to have a harder job in exile to be faithful to God. They're not going to be close to the temple. They're not going to know how to do sacrifices. They're not going to have their neighbors around them to love and worship with them together. It's going to be harder because their sins took them away into exile. Not only that, they're going to face war. And you know, whenever we talk about war, it's sort of hard to have pictures of war because we've gone so long at peace, at least in this country, But I was watching the news this week of the people trying to get out of Ukraine. And and I saw a mother um, just crying. She was being interviewed. And and she said, "I, I lost everything I had. And so in a sense, the Ukrainians are being exiled from their homes, which are gone, and their stuff, which is gone, and their jobs, which are gone, and their crops, which are gone. And they're leaving. And they've still got the breath in their lungs. But they're leaving into exile. And God is saying, and I I realized that as I was watching that, that is what sin does in our hearts. To say nothing about Ukraine and Russia and what's going on there, we, in our sins, go into exile. We have nothing less. So now verse 14. Therefore, the tumult of war shall arise among your people. Now when we hear war, we can picture some visuals of what war does to a people. But that was the wages of their sin. And they're going to lose the war. Verse 15, at dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. They lost. Their king was defeated. 722 B.C., the northern kingdom lost to Assyria and their king was cut off. Well, it seems like we didn't have much fun this morning, did we? Chapter 9, don't celebrate sin. Admit that you've liked sin. Understand that sins are slavery. Understand that our own deeds can't save us from our slavery. And don't forget the God who got you to the promised land. Don't forget the God who saved. Don't worship him today and then by Wednesday think, I did this myself. Worship is for every day, not just for Sunday. So sow worship, sow faith, sow the fruit of the Spirit and you'll reap that. Because, isn't it interesting, it sounds like Hosea should be the end of the story. Like you're reading this and you're like, all right, that's it. 
Why doesn't the story end at the end of Hosea 10 when the king of Israel was cut off and the people were sent into exile? Why doesn't the story end there? And why hasn't your story ended where you are if you've been stuck in sin for a while? Why wasn't that the end for you? Well, there's always hope for a harvest when it comes to the Lord. Look at verse 12. This just pops off as we're reading this, doesn't it? Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. If righteousness is sown, it can be reaped. And then what did Jesus do? He lived a life of perfect righteousness. He sowed righteousness in the ground with his life and death. And he reaped what he sowed because he defeated death. And we can reap that reward as well. Faith this week, it's not our deeds, it's our faith in Christ who has sown righteousness for us. God puts that righteousness into our account and faith receives that reward. Faith admits our sinfulness and that we've sort of liked our sins at times, but God gives us victory over sins that enslave and we receive victory over sins because Jesus has sown the righteousness. Faith becomes aware when we've run away in our sin and God welcomes us home in repentance and we run in the front door, which is wide open, and faith receives that loving embrace. Faith does this week what God said to Israel to do and they wouldn't do it in their stubborn hearts, but here it is, for it is time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Seek the Lord. What do they mean? Who is he? He's the God of steadfast love. He's the God who made sure the story didn't end when the king of the north died and they were sent into exile. So how does it happen? Verse 12, one last time. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. This week, we with hearts Turn towards God, offer him our lives, offer him worship, pray and seek his face and desperately go to him knowing that we cannot save ourselves and our kingdoms cannot save ourselves. The heart of faith runs to the Lord every day to spare us from this world of sin. And we need to remember that sinful kings cannot save. Now look at the end of verse 15 as we close. At dawn... The king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. But it didn't end there, did it? Because there was another dawn and another king. And the true king of Israel, Jesus, was sown into death and was buried. But on a different dawn, Easter, he rose from the grave. And he didn't just beat death. He defeated sin And he defeated Satan so that this week, as we seek the Lord in faith, sin can't defeat us, Satan can't defeat us, and death can't even stop us.
Because the king of righteousness died in our place. Who will save us from Hosea 9 and 10 and the depths of our sinful hearts? Jesus did. And a heart of faith will run to him every day this week. And we will reap what he has sown, the reward of faith. Let's pray. Lord, we reap what we sow. And we all know what it's like to sin. We've run from you. We've been prone to wander. But you were never prone to wander. Your son came and he walked through an exile story. He went into the wilderness. He experienced the lies of the enemy against him. He lived a perfectly righteous life. And he died in our place so that we wouldn't be stuck in Hosea 9 and 10. But we could be rescued from our sins because he was the king of righteousness. Lord, for every heart in this room, help us today and all week admit our sinful hearts and run to you to find the steadfast love your son has earned for us by grace through faith in him. Give us joy in your arms and in your presence this week as we run to you, our only hope. In Christ, our righteous King's name we pray. Amen.